Section 4 of The Rise and Fall of Prohibition. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Scientific Methodist. The Rise and Fall of Prohibition by Charles Hanson Town. Too Much Verboten, Part 1. One hears a great deal about the way the Volstead Act and the 18th Amendment were put over on the American people. It is true, as I have said, that the legislation came upon us suddenly, but everything was done in a perfectly legal and orderly manner. The people did not realize how far the Anti-Saloon League and kindred organizations had gone in their work. Also, deny it as they will, the advocates of prohibition used the war as an excuse, as a cloak for their propaganda. It was perfectly right for the Secretary of War and the Secretary of the Navy to forbid the sale of liquor to our men in uniform after we got into the conflict. We were at war, and it would have been as foolish for our boys to get drunk as it would be for an actor to go on the stage intoxicated. Moreover, in the heroic glamour of those now happily vanished days, it was so easy for soldiers and sailors to be entertained by any and everyone. Better, then, to clamp the lid on tightly. It was a time for efficiency, and no one is so foolish as to contend that the consumption of whiskey in large doses makes for a hardier race. One believes, with St. Paul, in moderation in all things. Youth, in a period of stress, needs direction, just as children do. Having arrived at an age of reason, man should be permitted to go his own way. But just as we needed discipline in the ranks, physical discipline, we needed spiritual discipline in wartime. There can be no real argument about this, I think. But even here we failed, partly. Liquor was sold to men in uniform, and men in uniform wanted it and found many ways to obtain it. The forbidden apple is always the sweetest, and the more we restrict and preach and restrain, the more eager certain natures will always be to achieve the very thing we decry and withhold. The war, of course, was responsible for many upheavals. We could not enter such a fiery conflict without feeling its bitter after-effects, any more than one can drink immoderately and not feel ill the next morning. That we fought to make a weary world safe for democracy is now nothing but a joke, a Gilbert and Sullivan joke worthy of a deathless lyric. Indeed, a short time ago, had a librettist put into a comic opera some of the happenings between 1914 and 1918, only some of them, mind you, his book would have been hissed off the stage. There are some things that are true to life, but not true to fiction. For instance, think of the irony of our boys being sent across the seas to shoot guns at the Prussians and begging them to free themselves from an autocratic Kaiser, and during their necessary absence, being deprived of a glass of beer when they came back home. It would be the most laughable farce comedy were it not the deepest tragedy. I can conceive of a brilliant first act, wherein some doughboys, parched and thirsty, arrive in a German village and for the first time in their lives taste real Munchner beer, the beer of their enemy, learn to like it decently enough, get the recipe, and decide to take back to their hometown the one good and harmless thing the enemy country gave them. Then, as a climax, they arrive, wounded and depressed, a tattered Amalian battalion, glad that the filthy war is over and done, and ready now to drop back into calm, blissful citizenship with their young wives and family. But no, say a delegation of legislators on the pier, a charming comic chorus this, with palms extended upright, you are all wrong, Bo, and you really ought to know. 
that we've rearranged the show, and it's bone dry you will go. And though honors we bestow, now, alas, no beer will flow, for we've put one over on you, prohibition. Curtain amid general consternation. Now, if a libretto with this plot development had been offered to a Broadway manager six years ago, it would have been turned down at once as impossible. I can see the first reader's report. Quote, A great deal of whimsical imagination is shown by the author, but the American people are very sensible, and even Barry and Gilbert could not be allowed to take such liberties with life as it is. Isn't it too bad that writers do not know the public better? What a pity it is that they cannot evolve plots that will be a revelation of life as it is, not as it might be in a mad whirligig world of fancy. This is not good, even as satire, for the situation could not exist, even in a realm of dreams. End quote. But see what has happened? This plot would have proved a prophecy and made several fortunes for the author and the manager. What? I hear some character saying in the course of the first act, just before the curtain descends? Do you mean to say that the boys who fought for this democracy stuff had no voice in the passing of the law that made it a crime to sip a glass of good beer? And the answer would be, of course not. How behind the times you are. America is a free country, you know. The people who dwell in it boast of their superiority of intellect and rejoice in their form of self-government, though they abrogate their votes to a pack of politicians who are, well, to put it bluntly, dishonest. For they drink themselves, while they bow to lobbyists who don't believe in drink for the other fellow. America, my good sir, is the land of the spree no longer. It is the home of the grave. Business of laughter, solemn music is heard, and the entire chorus of legislators pass with stately steps to the Capitol, dressed in heavy mourning. But nothing is being done about anything. The American people, whipped into obedience, as Prussians were never whipped, take their medicine, from which all but one-half of one percent of alcohol has been extracted, and why this modicum should be permitted to remain is only another joker in the whole stupid business, and obey the law. Only they don't. They go out and break it to bits, as I have shown, and our legislators wonder why they have so many bad children on their hands. And isn't it a strange world, and why is it that folks won't be good and do as they are told? And what are laws for, anyhow? and this disrespect of the law is awful and must be punished, and someone has got to go to jail, and why is Bolshevism growing when we are all so happy? Ah, there is the answer in one word. We are not happy. Everyone is decidedly, unequivocally, wretchedly, miserably, gloomily, stonily, fearfully, terribly unhappy. And why? Because one has to fight so hard for his fun nowadays. A lot of laws have been passed and more are threatened, which blast one's hopes of the simplest kind of good times. These laws are based on a complete misunderstanding of poor old human nature, which needs, every now and then, say what you will, an escape from the dreariness, the tedium of life. The harmless diversions which in childhood take the form of playing ball and cricket and tennis experience a metamorphosis as we grow older, a perfectly natural metamorphosis and we crave just a tinge of excitement after the harsh, unyielding day's work. Most Americans work hard, there is no doubt of that, except for a cause. But seriously, American business is a strenuous, glorious thing, a delightful game, if you will, but it is also a serious note in the scale of our national consciousness. We need relaxation after eight or nine hours at a desk, and the lights of a great city are the lure that lead us forth. Not to get drunk, God knows, but to get just that Philip the weary body and brain need when an honest day's work is done. 
The people who don't understand this and who are trying to rule and run America are in a class with those who fail to understand the psychology of Coney Island or any other simple pleasure resort, who are unable to distinguish between a happy sobriety and filthy gutter intoxication, who never heard Stevenson's line about Shelley, God, give me the young man with brains enough to make a fool of himself. How a glass of light wine or beer is going to hurt a fellow is more than I, for the life of me, can see. And if he takes his wife along, as he usually does, or wishes to do, there is precious little danger that one will ever fall over the terrible precipice of intoxication and go down into the bottomless pit of complete disaster. One might say to the reformers that for the most part our ancestors imbibed a bit, and here we are, thank you, and doing very nicely. There has never been a particle of evidence presented to prove that teetotalers live longer than moderate drinkers. Indeed, one doubts if they live as long. And it is well known that those races which refuse absolutely to drink do not produce anything of importance in the way of art, and surely they contribute nothing to the cause of science. Take the Mohammedans. Name one great artist among them, if you can, known to you and me. Had Americans been a race of drunkards, I could understand this sudden drastic legislation against booze, but we were far from that. Drink was beautifully taking care of itself. It was infradig to consume too much, and the young businessman who made it a practice to indulge in even one glass of beer at luncheon lost caste with his employer. Yes, and with his fellow workers. He soon discovered the error of his ways, and no longer found it expedient to feel sleepy in the afternoon, when others were alert and thoroughly alive. It was only honest to give to the concern for which he worked the flower of his brain and heart and so he passed up the casual glass with little if any reluctance and joined that great army of temperate men and women. He did not wish to be left behind in that race for glory, and where he had taken, without a qualm, four cocktails before a dinner party, now he took only one and sometimes left a drop or two of that in the glass. I can recall the time not so many years ago when everyone drank like a glutton. Country clubs were but excuses for dissipation, Locker rooms were nothing but bars, with waiters running in and out with trays of refreshing drinks. Alas, they are worse than that now, thanks to our reformers. But this brief era passed through the common sense of the people themselves. We did not require legislation to cause us to see whither we were drifting. Out of our own consciousness we knew, all but a few congenital drunkards, that that way madness lies. And so we quit of our own volition this heavy and stupid drinking. The society fellow worthless from the beginning, was cut out. The man of sterling qualities and action took his place. The lounge lizard became a deservedly abhorrent creature, unfit for the companionship of decent men. We came, as I see it, and I have observed American life in many spheres, to a sense of our own foolishness. Big business didn't want the toper. Big business scorned the young clerk who followed the gay lights along the gay white way, the fool who sat up all night taking chorus girls to lobster palaces. With that alertness for which the American is famed, our young men realized that to succeed in the realm of business, they would have to turn over a new leaf. And they did it. I ask the reformers to deny this if they can. There has been no menace from drink in this country for many and many a year. We never drank as the English laboring man drinks, or even as the Germans consume beer. We were, as the whole world is aware, a race of moderate drinkers, omitting always those few and necessary exceptions which only serve to prove the rule. Yet, as a nation, we were indicted, held up to ridicule and scorn. We were told that we could not control our appetites, and so our benevolent government would control them for us. And this in the face of the fact that we had learned to control them. 
I can likewise recall the time, not so long ago, when crowds of children would follow some forlorn drunkard being hauled to the station house. Even though the corner saloon continued to flourish long after you and I grew up, how many years is it, I ask anyone, since we have seen this sorry spectacle? And as for seeing a man lying prone in the gutter, that seems a prehistoric incident to me. Yet such incidents ceased long before national prohibition became an outrageous fact. Taking care of ourselves, still we had to be taken care of. Ah, in our frenzy to become too pure. Let us remember the dangers of benevolent autocracies. The state has one definite function, the church another. The mingling of church and state is not that one of the pitfalls we have long sought to avoid. If the former looks after souls, the latter should be satisfied to see to our bodies, and that would be duty enough. Let us do a little figuring. There are approximately 110 million people in the United States of America. Of these, let us say that 40 million are men and 40 million women. Of minors, there are perhaps 30 million more. Among the last named, there would be very little drinking. I imagine that of the male population, a considerable number do not imbibe at all. I would rather err, giving the opposition the benefit of the doubt, and so I will say that 20 million males drink in moderation, and that 10 million females do the same. This gives us, out of a total population of 110 million, only 30 million people who care anything at all about liquor. Of that number, how many, do you think, are what might be called immoderate drinkers? Five million? That, it seems to me, would be a fair estimate. More than fair. But let us be generous to a fault. Of that five million, how many are congenital drunkards? A million? Perhaps, though I doubt that even that number have sunk so low. But let us say two million have done so. Then it has become necessary to deprive 30 million people of a simple form of pleasure because 2 million do not know how to manage their souls and bodies. It would be equally ridiculous to put an end to connubial bliss because there are a few libertines in the world. End of section 4. Recording by Scientific Methodist.